It's not just about changing farming practices. It's not just about developing new markets. It's really about bringing culture back into agriculture. It's not just agribusiness. The focus is not just production and profit. It really is about developing a human side to our food systems. And of course, it goes way beyond just the farm and goes all the way to the table as we think about how all of the parts of the food system are interconnected and how the people who consume the food are just as important as the people who grow the food in order to develop a movement that'll transform food systems. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Thirty years ago, the death of Ramon Gonzalez was published and subsequently began making an impression on thousands of people around the world with, as Wes Jackson of the Land Institute said, a new way of looking at the tragic human and environmental consequences of chemical-dependent agriculture. The author of this groundbreaking book, Angus Wright, recently passed away after a really productive life. For the author of a book that begins with a death from chemical agriculture in Mexico, it seems fitting that the death of the author himself, Angus Wright, could begin with a review of the lessons learned, the progress made, and and, and what more is needed for, quote, modern agriculture? And, and to help with that journey, I'm pleased to welcome Steve Gleesman. He's a farmer, retired professor, one of the first guests on Farm to Table Talk, and an author himself. And Steve, you literally wrote the book on agroecology, and I have it proudly here <laughs> on my bookcase. So welcome to Farm to Table Talk, Steve. Good to see you again. Good to see you, Roger. Gosh, it's, uh, yeah, it's been been a very challenging several years here with COVID and climate change and all the good things facing us every day. But, uh, you know, it is important to look back and think about contributions people make. Uh, and someone like Angus Wright, who always in his own quiet sort of way, uh, pointed out how important it was to find alternatives to chemical intensive modern agriculture. Uh, I valued his book a lot in, when I was teaching at UC Santa Cruz uh, as an example of the kind of awareness, the kind of understanding we need about the social consequences of chemical agriculture. And for agroecology, of course, that's always been a very important focus. I suppose that people can go Amazon or go to their independent bookstore and have them locate copies of the death of Ramon Gonzalez. But you said you had it uh, and shared it with had students reading it as well. Has that happened in other campuses as, as well of using the death of Ramon Gonzalez to get the conversation started? Oh, I'm sure it has. I I know, for example, that you know both uh, John Vandermeer and Yvette Perfecto at the University of Michigan, who were very close with Angus and actually had him participate in a book titled the the, the uh, what's it called the nature's matrix yes. and how important it is to understand the, the the relationship between complexity in nature and complexity in society and put those together and think about 
a different view, a different form, a different way of, of doing farming. So, you know, I, I'm sure, yeah, like you say, you can find his copies of his book. It was quite popular for many years after it was published. And, and uh, a lot of people, especially those now working in what I call the, the area of, of food justice, you know, refer to his book as a, as a keystone book in the field. Steve, I talk to a lot of people that are in agriculture. They talk, you know, they talk about themselves being into regenerative now or sustainable. And you and I've covered those subjects before, although regenerative is getting used more than when we first were talking uh, and mm -hmm. agroecology and explaining what it means. But there's this, you know, general inclination that people are looking at doing things better and feeling like there's consequences in and you know certainly the type of agriculture that he points out one, one of the things getting into the book though of the death of ramon gonzalez what seemed different to me when i picked up the book from him i thought you're going to go through this long book and then the end the person will die but <laughs> he deals with the death right up front and then kind of fills it in of what was happening in in mexico and, yeah. um, and some of the progress that people call progress taking place in, in Mexico um, had consequences that weren't being talked about. And, and it seems like, Steve, you had some similar journeys. I mean, you have been uh, going south of the border for many years yourself. And, uh, and uh, at a certain stage, I mean, you read that book, but you were also down discovering some of these truths that that angus talked about and yeah i I'm, I'm curious when you you think of your own journey in that way and then you see somebody like angus recording a journey and, and bringing that to people to have an appreciation for what happened there I, I guess appreciation doesn't seem quite like the right word but maybe knowledge of what was going on the consequences yeah. of yeah. where we were headed with agriculture yeah, this was especially true for the five years I, I taught at a small school of tropical agriculture in southern Mexico in the state of Tabasco, uh, a small school established in the early 70s, uh, designed to teach um, young budding agronomists from the tropics in the tropics. And, uh, you know, I was, I was asked to join the faculty as an ecologist, um, I was not yet an agroecologist at that time. <laughs> and here, here was this college with a, with a bunch of students in the midst of one of the, a very large uh, World Bank funded green revolution project where they took down forest, uh, put in large monoculture, improved seed variety, high fertilizer use in, and chemical dependent farming systems in place of what was there before. And I guess for me, that was my intercultural education. We're looking around at the kind of agriculture that was in this region before the modern chemical intensive approach came. And I discovered a whole different kind of agriculture, Mayan traditional farming systems corn bean squash, agroforestry, integrated livestock crop systems that, of course, have been functioning for hundreds, if not thousands of years in this tropical region of lowland Mexico. 
And, and so as an ecologist looking at these systems and spending time in the field with farmers, sharing our knowledge back and forth about nature on one side and farming on the other, agroecology was born for me, agroecologia. That's what we called it. We had no other term for it. It just seemed natural to blend the two components, agriculture and ecology together. And for us, it became agroecologia. Uh, and it was built on traditional knowledge. It was built on farming that had taken place for a long time, working with nature rather than against her. So it, it uh, you know, it was important for me when I came back to Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz, and started teaching there in the early 80s. I brought that with me. And we tried and continue, I think, the, the Center of Agroecology at UC Santa Cruz, you know, is working on and continues to work on developing an alternative way of farming that moves away from the chemical intensive modern system. So I'm not sure, were you down in that area having that experience about the same time as Angus or would it would have followed or proceeded or? I think it was probably around the same time. I think that's when he and Wes both started the environmental studies program at, at Sac State. And uh, worked, I guess they worked together for a time before Wes moved off to uh, establish the Land Institute. But, uh, you know, that I think that there was a shared experience with both of them that, of course, turned into a relationship that I think both of them kept for, for many, many years. You know, I think... We moved up here from Santa Cruz. I got to know you when we were in Santa Cruz and moved up to Sacramento and moved right next to the Sacramento State campus. And then, yeah. and um, I wanted to learn more of what was happening in the Land Institute. So I was driving across the country and and connected there and yeah. had a conversation with Wes Jackson and some others. And it turned out that I learned that back in the new home I had, that Wes Jackson had started the environmental studies program at Sacramento State, and which was like two blocks from where my house is right now. Yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then it turned out that Angus Wright had been the chairman of the board for the Land Institute, who continued to be here at the Sacramento State campus. And, um, and he was around the corner from me. Yeah. So I had a chance yeah. to... Uh, invite him and Mary to come down and had a glass of wine with us in our front yard. And he brought me this book, The Death of Ramon Gonzalez. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but what a coincidence. You go tripping across the world and even connect with like your connection, being in the same area and what you were discovering and what you've been able to contribute since then. The, the one thing that's that I'm thinking about, though, Steve, um, you've come back and you've written a book. You've you've taught so many people about agroecology now and you were influenced by what you saw and observed at the time uh, angus did as well one thing he did though was write a book that punctuated this with an actual death yeah uh, you know in some respects that was pretty unnerving because you can talk about the philosophy of agriculture and and in the abstract but when you go back and you tie it to somebody's death who was really caused by some of this pretty bold approach to build the story that way yeah it seems to me yeah oh yeah a real human experience you know it's one thing to talk about you know problems but when problems result in a death that's what what better 
uh, story do you need to say we need an alternative to that kind of system? Because Ramon Gonzalez was just one of many, one of many who died because of the kind of agriculture they had to work in. That story, many other people have been trying to say it as well, you know, and as a, as a really important foundation for why we need to transform modern systems. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's too easy to think that, you know, a small farmer in Mexico or a farm worker in the U.S. is, is just a, a cost that has to be paid in order to produce the wealth that modern agriculture can produce. But it's a real human story that needs to be told. And those human stories are what convince people of the need for change. Many of us grew up with the story of Norman Borlaug and the Green Revolution and, and really taught to um, celebrate it, that it was um, an, an accomplishment. And there were no doubt, you can argue many things were accomplished from some of the research and genetics and, and so forth. But this broader side of the story of the application increased chemicals and a change in the type of agriculture from the balance that you described and what Angus described as possible is is an undertold story. Yeah. And and having been on that journey yourself now for what several decades that you've um, you've done this and you've taught other people. How should I say this? Uh, what makes you heartened by what you've seen or what you've experienced? And is the outlook better than than it than it was thirty years ago? Yeah, yeah. Well, for me personally, what I see happening around the world, agroecology really has become a social movement. It's not just about changing farming practices. It's not just about developing new markets. It's really about bringing culture back into agriculture. It's not just agribusiness. The focus is not just production and profit. It really is about developing a human side to our food systems. And of course, it goes way beyond just the farm and goes all the way to the table as we think about how all of the parts of the food system are interconnected and how the people who consume the food are just as important as the people who grow the food in order to develop a movement that'll transform food systems. The pandemic really gave us an example of how important that local kind of food system's all about, where you could bring, you had to, local people back together again, farmers and eaters, as part of a different alternative, a different way of creating a food system that met the needs, not only of the land and of farmers, but of the table and the people who eat the food. And so that's now, in my opinion, something that has really caught on in a lot of places, not just at the local level, but all the way up through the food system to, gosh, even places like the Food and Agriculture Organization, AFAO, which now has a very strong agroecology platform. And it's very strongly built on this concept I'm telling you about of bringing, making it a people-centered food system, not just a profit-centered food system. You know, I think I tried to contribute a little bit this weekend because I went to the farmer's market up here in Sacramento. And there is a, a, a rancher who's had a, his family has been ranching since 1861, not far from Sacramento. Mm -hmm. he, had, um, he had frozen grass-fed beef. 
And uh, not only did I was I able to stop and get my normal supply, which I try to pick something up almost every week, and and I pride myself in getting frozen because you know so often you you can't have it just exactly when you want it for the for the fresh. But yeah. you can take it home, leave it in the refrigerator, and then put it in the slow cooker the next day, and it's it's perfect. But anyway, <laughs> I was able to take somebody else with me then, and I was just saying, here I want to introduce you, and this is. This is this rancher, and here's what he's doing. And he's got this grass-fed beef program, and he told him a little bit more about the story. But uh, but I just go crazy at those sites. You and I used to talk at the farmers markets back in Santa Santa Cruz. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> and, and I, I miss having an excuse to sample your wine at nine o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, those were those were really good times. And the farmers markets, you know, for a while there, we we were taking our wine to three farmers markets a week in Santa Cruz. And uh, it was quite a lot of work. And but we did develop a really nice clientele. You were one of them. And then we moved into a different mode of direct marketing, which is a wine club where people, you know, we can actually subscribe to our to our wine and our olive oil. And that's really become a, an important market for us now. And uh, yeah, it's, it continues to grow. Of course, now our problem is climate change on this marginal edge environment in which we do dry farming. And uh, so our, our production levels are lower now and our inventory is down. And so it's <laughs> creating some pretty remarkable challenges. Is there any offsetting um, quality issues that are on the positive side? I mean, it used to be that you wanted some of in some areas you get better wines you get some more flavors in them when they have to work harder but maybe yeah. it's gotten to the point of ridiculous now because they they're having to work so hard to make up for the lack of lack of water but it is there is a limit obviously to how much you can stress a plant and we're learning how to adapt to that what these kinds of systems are telling us though is that the water intensive approach to agriculture in California, especially, and in Southern California more than anywhere, it's gonna have to change because there is just not enough water to maintain those water intensive systems that have developed either on water brought down from Northern California or from groundwater that is being over pumped in dramatic to dramatic levels so that you know, we're playing running out of water. And so, you know, we have to reconceptualize what sustainability is under water limiting conditions. One of the other frontiers I'm wondering about, and that is, it seems to me there are more people looking at better utilization of, of livestock. And the organic industry has been really, really, you know, careful about that, because obviously, you, you don't want to have um, some of the E. coli and salmonella and, and so forth that that you can be exposed to if you come into contact with animal animal waste. But on the other hand, um, it certainly seems to fit in some operations with for fertilization and maximizing food production. I'm, I'm wondering if you see that as well of, of more utilization of livestock. Oh, yeah, I can think of several of my former students who are doing what I call integrated farming, where crops and livestock are linked together as they always were in the past before specialization became so important in agriculture. You know, we know that animals can turn a lot of biomass into useful products that we can't consume. 
to start with. We can't we can't eat leftover plant material, you know, but animals can, and it turns it into both something we can harvest and materials that are contribute to soil fertility. Learning how to do all that in a safe, sound way is what we're trying to find out. But where a lot of small-scale livestock operations face is the difficulty of finding places to process their meat. And we're really talking about the need for small-scale, portable, movable slaughtering facilities that can go farm to farm and help farmers um, maintain what they grow and process it. And then at the same time, you know, convince consumers that this is the kind of meat or animal products that they want to consume as well, because it contributes not only to helping farmers maintain a livelihood, but protect the environment in the process. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion right now about how we need to get off animal diets. Well, I agree with that if those animals are coming from large-scale operations that contribute to both contamination of the environment, release of methane, carbon from, you know, ponds and all this stuff, but also depend upon large-scale monoculture grain production to feed those animals rather than have animals moving around in pastures, in in past crop areas, all this kind of stuff that integrated livestock is telling us about. And the best thing I can see is that more and more small-scale farmers are moving in that direction and successfully. You know, when I was flying back from seeing Wendell Berry at the, um, this book fair in Lexington, Kentucky, and I was flying home, as I went across the country and you look out the window and, and look at all that ground, and I think, I wish I had some of the people with me that are saying we should get rid of livestock because I, I could say, you know what, I can show you thousands and thousands of acres, alone hundreds and hundreds of miles, where it's not possible to grow any other food than something that to make use of it, you need to have four stomachs and there's you know, <laughs> yeah. or at least three. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you wrote the book on agroecology. Is it still in print, Steve? Two weeks ago, the fourth edition came out. All right. Yeah. And it really moves the field of agroecology to the next level, in my opinion. So, yeah, yeah, no, and it's uh, what I did with the fourth edition is I invited one of my former grad students, who's now a professor of agroecology at the University of Vermont, Ernesto Mendez, and a, a colleague of his, and also one other uh, writer, to join me as authors of this fourth edition, thinking that, you know, I, I may not even be around for the fifth edition, and uh, it's need to really start the process of, of transitioning to the next generations. And it's it's great. I think you'll really enjoy the the fourth edition because it it really talks about this process of transformative change that agroecology uh, promotes. You know, it's more than regenerative. It's more than organic. It's a step beyond the farming practices into challenging and confronting the economic and political power structures that keep change from happening. How do we do that? What kind of alternatives do we put in place in order to create the movement that provides, you know, the 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 incentive for change in the future? So it's it's been fun keeping up with the field. And as you know, I'm also 
the editor of uh, an international journal, Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems. And we use that journal again to educate researchers in agroecology how to do agroecology in ways that really meet the goals of the journal journal that we manage. So that's that's been a lot of fun too. I still work quite a bit with that. Well, I'm glad I asked the question because I'm going to have to get my hands on the fourth edition. <laughs> you know, I think, as you know, if I've, I've pushed back at all, is just it's the marketer in me. Because uh, even from our earliest conversation, I thought it's, it's so hard to explain to the average person agroecology. So yeah. Like, yeah. You know, we didn't start off in a focus group and come up with a name like, you know, Tide or something. Yeah. And it's so that that's always kind of tricky. But that problem has gotten worse in a way because. Uh, when you were starting to talk about agroecology and printed the, the book the first time and so forth, mm -hmm. there weren't so many people competing for alternate branding options. I mean, so now you've got non-GMO, you've got the real organic, and you've got regenerative, and you've got sustainable, and you've got <laughs> these companies that are, yeah. are oh, yeah. on hold of something. Yeah. And, um, and it, it just seems like that challenge has gotten has not gotten easier. It's, it's still a challenge to deal with the... the you know, well, the, the good thing the good thing is is that people are thinking about the need for all something that's an alternative to the modern chemical intensive approach. With the development of all these alternative ways of farming, one of the biggest limiting factors is that they're so easy to capture, to co-opt, to, to greenwash even. You know, and, and look at the big companies now who have always been strong on um, the, the, with a focus on, you know, large scale production, consolidation and all that. Uh, you know, what, that's what something about agroecology that's so important is that, you know, I've always said on one hand, it's, you know, the ecology of agriculture and the agronomy of agriculture, how you produce, but how you do it in a way that works with nature rather than against them. You put those two together and you have agroecology, but it's, it can't just be taking place at the farm level. It also has to take place in the alternative markets, but it also has to take place when we start talking around food farm policy. For example, next year, there's going to be a lot of work around a new uh, farm bill. But what it ought to be really is a farm and food bill. It's not just about you know production agriculture. It's about the whole food system. Yeah. And just recently, I would recommend a, a policy brief that the International Panel of Experts in Sustainable Food Systems, IPES Food, they just put out an article that explores this, this whole aspect of, of branding, as you were calling it, and how the branding issue uh, really hinders transformative change in food systems, you know, because it, it's got to have the science, it's got to have the practice of farming, but it's also got to have the social change component, looking towards transformative change that brings sustainability from an environmental perspective together with sustainability from a social perspective. And if you don't have all three of those components, science, practice, and social movement, it's not agroecology. 
Describe that, Steve, describe that again. Spell that out so people could look for that. Yeah. I've always said that the science of ecology, the science of how nature works, brought into agriculture, creates a real powerful science for changing farming practice. That's the science. But then you need the practice. You need the experience of farmers, of indigenous, traditional small scale farmers, especially, you know, who have been doing this, who've worked out the issue together with the science. And then beyond just the the science and the practice, that's where the people in in the food system come into play. And it goes beyond the the farm and the the market and goes into, you know, what it means to be a, a, a conscious consumer a consumer that supports a different kind of food system, that's aware of the dangers of chemical agriculture, that's pushing for more direct local market systems, that really understands the value of people in our food system. And so a lot of social movements now have taken on agroecology as their banner because they know it links practice, science, and change at the social level altogether for something truly different and establishes a basis and alternative to the kinds of, of chemical intensive agriculture that's dominated our food systems for too long. You mentioned a paper that was recently published that captured this. What was that again? Well, let's see. It, it was actually a policy brief published by IPEST Food. IPES-food.org. And the new briefing is titled Smoke and Mirrors, Examining Competing Framings of Food System Sustainability. It really sort of explores this whole issue of branding that you were talking about, Roger, and how branding is so easy to capture rather than use as a foundation for transformative change. Go to the IPES Food website. Okay. And there has been over the last, oh gosh, seven or eight years, some pretty remarkable sort of publications, reports, policy briefings that really lay out what uh, I guess I would say uh, something grounded in the in the, the concept of right to food. Right to food. People have a right to to a, a healthy, sufficient culturally appropriate diet that, that that's getting harder and harder for people to obtain, <laughs> if you think about it. You know, Steve, we can't have a conversation like this without me asking you the normal question that, uh, that always comes up, probably one of the first things I brought up when we first met and started talking mm-hmm. about agroecology, and that is the critics that say, yes, this makes sense, but it's there's no way we can feed the world with that that approach, and it's not the first time you've heard that comment. Yeah. But, uh, oh yeah. Yeah. It's, how do you how do you address that these days? We could talk about how certain narratives, certain ways of telling a story, can dominate our thinking, and I think that need to produce narrative is one of them. Uh, and when we change that narrative a bit and really talk about what it means to produce what we can really call food rather than feedstock for fuel 
or feedstock for animals or feedstock for industrial purposes rather than for food, you have a whole different story. And that's the narrative, the new narrative that we need. And I think personally, agroecology is pushing that new narrative and pushing it with evidence, documented cases of people who can actually produce more that for, for consumption and for the environment with an alternative approach. And it might be regenerative, it might be organic, but it is a different way of farming that uh, it integrates lots of different approaches, but puts it into a context of, you know, the whole food system and how the whole system needs to change. You mentioned that there's a farm bill ahead. And there will be people looking to get things in that farm bill that can be uh, supporting directions like this and research. There's grants, I know, that have been made yeah. already by USDA yeah. and various mm -hmm. state departments of agriculture to help with the local meat processing to to deal with those, those challenges as well. But I always think it's good to point out to people that the farm bill itself, 70% of the funding, about 70%, maybe more than 70%, are for the various uh, food programs. And um, and so there's, but of that part, there's still a big dollar figure that's for agriculture. Uh, it's trying to be spread over all sorts of things, which can include uh, more support for what you're talking about. Well, but such a small, small part of, of that, funding is for alternatives. Um, and, you know, when you say such a high percentage is for food programs, the question I then have is why do we need those food programs? What's wrong with our food system that people don't have easier, more affordable access to food and have to depend upon these food support programs? Something is wrong with the system that's created that need. And that's what needs to change. That's what that it opened up a whole new chapter. I went into a clubhouse room the other day with people that were from uh, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Virginia, other places, and they were all working on community farming and mm -hmm. growing inside urban areas. And yeah, very interested in taking your approaches, but finding finding spaces really in what had been urban areas. Mm -hmm. so that's a, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, no, that the the whole re so re re sort of development of what we call planning in urban areas to include the food component yeah that's starting to to gain emphasis all around the world as we realize a, a portion of of food production comes from open spaces green spaces in urban areas not all of it but a part of it which also informs people a little more about what good food is, where it comes from, how it can be grown. And then you add, link it to the peri-urban, the areas around urban areas, and then to rural beyond that. And you create hubs, you create links, you create direct chains that move food from the farm to the table in a way that benefits both the eater and the producer. You know, these are, these are examples that are starting to happen around the world. And I think forming the foundation at the grassroots level for the, the future change in our food systems. Steve, I tell you, I enjoyed these conversations and uh, we need to talk more often. I, I feel like it's uh, 
we're we're talking about moving ahead with at the same time started the conversation with a little bit of looking back both your own experiences yeah. and, and angus right mm -hmm. and others that have made contributions and and it keeps building and making progress angus didn't live quite long enough to uh, see perhaps the progress we still have in front of us but he contributed so much and we're fortunate to have and should be celebrating that yeah. life and glad that angus yeah and contributed to this and and i'm sure many of your students and others are still finding ways that they can make a contribution so i, yeah. I hope a podcast conversation helps a little bit in that direction and and Steve, we'll have to do this again sometime because, uh, again, you've got me excited about <laughs> uh, ways to look at what's happening and how it can keep on getting better. So I want to thank you for being on Farm to Table Talk. Well, thank you for inviting me, Roger, and we'll definitely be in touch. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 